Welcome, and thank you for listening to Muskegon History and Beyond with the Lakeshore Museum Center. My name is Pat Horn, and today's episode is titled, Tree to Board, an Overview of Lumbering in Muskegon. On our episode today, I'd like to go over the lumbering process that made Muskegon and Michigan the places that they are today. We're going to be looking specifically at the area around Muskegon County and how lumbering was done here, but be aware a similar process, tools, techniques, and history exist for most of Michigan when it comes to lumbering. Just swap out some of the names and locations, and most everything else applies. The first area to see major lumber production was the Saginaw Valley area and Saginaw. North of Detroit, Saginaw was close to the resources needed to create a lumber mill. The rivers and Lake Huron also provided easy transportation. The other advantage of Saginaw was its location near the desired trees, white pines. If you look at a map of Michigan and draw a line just north of Muskegon across the state to the tip of the Saginaw Bay, the area south of the line would be a majority of hardwoods such as oak. North of that line, however, there is a majority of the valuable and desired white pines. Why was white pine so important, you might be wondering? Well, white pine had several qualities that made it ideal for lumbering. For the lumbermen, it was one of the largest tree species in Michigan, with trees standing upward of 150 feet tall, and with a tree width between 3 to 7 feet. These giant white pines are all but extinct in Michigan today, but if you want to see what Michigan looked like through these lumbermen's eyes, Hartwick Pines State Park in Grayling has about 40 acres where these giant pines can still be seen. Another advantage was these pines grew straight, which allowed minimal waste when turning them into boards. White pine is a softwood which made for easy cutting, while its lightweight made it easy to transport and float well on the water. Consumers of white pine marveled at its ease to shape and split, its durability, how light it was, and even that it was nice to paint. All of these traits led naturalist and poet Henry David Thoreau to say of it, quote, there is no finer tree, end quote. In 1837, Muskegon entered the arena of lumber boom towns when Benjamin Wheelock built the first sawmill on Muskegon Lake. By 1850, there were six mills on the lake, including ones run by Martin Ryerson, Chauncey Davis, Gideon Truesdale, and L.G. Mason. Shortly after 1850, the Rudderman brothers came to Muskegon, and the number of mills around the lake increased. By the 1880s, Muskegon was known as the Lumbering Queen and had several lumber-bearing billionaires living in town, including Charles Hackley, Thomas Hume, and John Torrent. So how did these men make their millions and help Muskegon grow into a large and prosperous town? A lumber baron was the man who was in charge of the lumbering operation or the business owner. In order to join their ranks, first you had to obtain a sawmill on the lake. With some capital, a mill could be built with the newest, most efficient technology or, more commonly, someone was bought out of an existing mill's ownership. How common was this ownership change? Let me put it this way. The person whose job it was to paint the name of the company on the sawmill never had to look for another job. These mills were built on docks on Muskegon Lake, and most were powered by steam, which drove a large circular saw blade, or later, a multiple blade gang saw, which could cut an entire log into boards at once. After the mill was built or bought, a prospector was hired to find a cluster of white pine trees. The prospector would travel north of the line we mentioned earlier and look for stands of large white pine trees, stands that were also hopefully near the river, in our case, the White and Muskegon Rivers. Once located, the deed to the land had to be purchased. During the lumbering period, land was cheap, around $1.25 an acre. So most lumber barons bought in bulk, usually 40 square acre sections. However, since law enforcement was scarce in remote northern Michigan forest, 
the term around 40 was soon created. This term applies to those who bought a 40-acre plot and then proceeded to stretch the borders of it until the original 40 acres and the neighboring 10 acres or so were cleared of pine. There was a risk of inspection, though, as a group of lumbermen in Montague discovered when the inspectors seized their ill-gotten gains and sold them for a nice profit for the government. Thank you very much for the free labor. With land and a mill secured, the next step was to hire workers. Today we would call many of these workers lumberjacks, but that term was unfamiliar to them. Instead, the term shanty boy was more common. These shanty boys had to make their way up to the pine land and then proceed to create their base camp. Logging camps had several important buildings, a shanty where the shanty boys slept and spent their free time, a stable for horses and oxen used at the camp, a blacksmith building for the blacksmith or dentist who sharpened the tools, for sure not the person you want fixing your teeth though, a shack or an office for the camp boss, and of course, most importantly, the mess hall where the flapjacks, sinkers, and black lead were made and eaten. Or for you non-shanty boys out there, where the pancakes, donuts, coffee, and other food was made. All this work constructing the camp would have been done in late fall or early winter so that when winter hit and the snow started to fall, you were ready to begin the real work. The earliest lumberjacks, which I'll call them from now on because we are all more familiar with that term, used the two-bitted Michigan axe for cutting down trees. This double-bladed axe allowed for longer continuous work before the blade needed to be sharpened by the dentist. This made it efficient and more productive, which meant more money for the lumber barons in the end. Speaking of being more efficient, it wasn't long until two-bedded axes were replaced by the quicker and ultra-productive cross-cut saw. While axes could cut down trees at a decent rate, they required skills, muscles, and time. A cross-cut saw lowered the requirements of all of these. A cross-cut saw consisted of one blade with many comb-like teeth protruding from the edge. At each end of the blade were wooden handles that the lumberjacks grabbed. These saws could be six foot or longer to match the diameter of some of the largest trees Michigan had to offer. To cut the tree down, the men stood on either side of the tree with the saw horizontal to the trunk. The saw was then pushed and pulled back and forth, cutting into the wood. As you can imagine, some coordination between the two men was required, but once they got into a rhythm, they could cut into the tree at an alarming rate, nearly as fast as a chainsaw today. When the tree was about to fall, the familiar call of TIMBER followed by a large crash would reverberate around the forest. This yell let other lumberjacks know they had to check their surroundings and to take cover. The predecessor of heads up, as I like to tell the kids today. Once the tree was down on the ground, a different group of lumberjacks, often nicknamed swampers, would attend to the tree. Their job was to cut off the branches and cut the tree into logs, usually at a set length. 12, 14, 18, 20 foot, etc. This work prepped the logs for transport out of the woods and to the riverbank. That work was done by teamsters who used sleighs pulled by horses or oxen. It is for this reason that lumbering was done in the winter, as any other time of the year the ground would be too soft for the logs to be transported by sled. A problem that was solved in later years of lumbering when new inventions reached the wilderness of Michigan and allowed year-round logging. One of these was the big wheel. Big wheels were, much as the name suggests, a giant set of wheels 9 to 10 foot high connected by an axle that had chains hanging from it. Logs would be strung up on the chains from the axle and then the giant wheels would allow heavy loads to be pulled by horses over the forest floor without sinking. The other invention that made year-round logging possible was the arrival of small gauge rails to northern Michigan. 
These small rail systems connected the sawmills in town with the camps. Logs were loaded on the trains, sent down the tracks, and unloaded at the back door of the sawmills. Before these inventions though, snow and cold temperatures were required to make ice paths for the sleds and heavy loads of logs. Some images in our collection have these sleds piled to ridiculously high heights, around 15 to 20 foot tall. The practicality of this though, however, is suspect in my mind as it seems the two poor horses expected to pull that weight would collapse from exhaustion after a few feet. More than likely the men were showing off for the photographer and four to eight foot piles of wood were more the norm. Once the Teamsters reached the riverbank, they would find the rollway point. This was a clear area along the bank which had a slight slope to it. The logs would be stacked in huge piles and stoppers wedged in to keep them from moving. Think of a giant log pyramid. At this point, a person called a scaler used a tool called a scale stick to measure the logs for the amount of lumber they contained in board foot, which is a one foot by one foot square that was one inch thick. This number was key to the lumber baron who sold the lumber in board feet, giving him the idea of how much he would have to sell from the season's cuttings. The scale stick which measured this was much like a yardstick, except that it had numbers at the base that were the length of the logs. The stick would then be put on the end of the log and the diameter of the log measured. Running the length of the stick were numbers in board feet that were relative to the log length. The width measurement in conjunction with the log length would tell you how many board foot said log would give you when cut, taking into account the waste. That number was recorded and the scaler continued on, quite literally scaling the pile to measure all of the logs. At the same time, logs would be marked using a marking hammer. This was a sledgehammer that had a special symbol or mark on the head of it. This mark was raised from the hammer's head so that when it was struck into the log, it created an imprint negative on the wood. This mark allowed ownership of the log to be identified later. The catch with this system though is that everyone's mark had to be different and unique. To make sure log marks were not duplicated, each river system was required to have a master ledger book at a location near the outlet of the river system. Here on the Muskegon River, it was at Muskegon. This ledger cataloged each company's mark and who was the current owner of that mark. As ownership of mills changed, so too did the owner of that mill's mark. So for example, if I had a square as my symbol, if I sold my share in the log mill, the new owner would acquire all the logs that were found that had that square mark in them, whether they be lost in the woods or later discovered at a different mill. These marks varied considerably from numbers and letters to animals, shapes, pictures, or even just lines. If you want to see some examples of this, I suggest you search online for a book called Muskegon County Log Marks by Lewis Torrent which contains over 150 log mark images from the Muskegon River system. After each log was measured and marked, the waiting game began for the spring thaw. This was key to the success of all involved. If there was a winter with light snow, or the snow thawed too slowly and steadily, then the river would not reach the required depth, speed, or width to carry the logs downstream. A year like this could ruin all but the most established lumbering companies. When everything went according to plan though, and the river was running high, fast and brave men with sledgehammers would knock out the stoppers keeping thousands of logs in place and scamper out of the way before they came crashing down into the river. This spectacle, which was described as being as loud as thunder, would oftentimes be posted in the paper and was attended by curious onlookers who brought a picnic lunch with them. With that, the lumber drive began, or as one lumberjack put it, now the real work began. This step of the process was the most dangerous part for those involved. 
with tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of logs in the river, getting them from point A in the woods to point B, the sawmill, was a difficult task. You've heard of the saying, you can't see the forest for the trees. Well, in lumbering, you can't see the river for the trees, as these logs would often cover the water, making it possible to cross the river by walking from log to log. To guide the logs, many lumberjacks took jobs being river hogs or river rats men who rode downriver with the logs to see their safe passage to Muskegon Lake. This job was extremely dangerous and difficult, but made you some extra money, so many men were eager to take on that challenge despite the risk. The drive, as this process was generally called, was originally a separate affair ran by each company with their own crews. However, there was much overlap and competition that cost time and money for all involved. In 1855, the Michigan legislature ruled that companies could form for mutual river drives, booming of lumber, and rafting of lumber. The first such organization formed after this ruling was on the Muskegon River and was named the Muskegon Lumbermen's Association. A few years later, it was replaced by the Muskegon Booming Company, which organized all further drives on the Muskegon River. The Muskegon Booming Company hired its workers out of every company who was in the organization to spread the labor around and make it fair. These men then divided into teams who worked different parts of the river drive. In the front of the drive were the men who cleared the river of obstacles and debris and monitored for the formation of log jams. With all the logs in the river and the twists and turns of the river, it was inevitable that the logs would get turned and stuck together. When this happened, these men plunged into the icy water with PVs, pikes, and cant hooks to break the logs apart and continued the steady flow. As you can imagine, staying clear of the rushing logs once they came free was extremely dangerous. If tools failed them, these men would often turn to dynamite to blast apart the log jams. And with safety precautions of the 1870s, you can guess just how safe this was. On a side note, it was these very log jams that gave us the term, today, I'm in a jam. In the middle of the log run were men who, like shepherds, brought stray logs back to the main river flow. They also had the job, though, of stopping and slowing down the logs upstream in case of a jam to keep the situation from getting worse. To do this, they used long log booms of chained together logs to block off sections of the river to isolate log jams. At the back of the log drive was the cleanup crew. These men waded into the water and searched the side channels and under branches to get the few remaining stray logs downstream. Because they spent so much time in the chilly water, these men had a secret weapon. They would smear fat and grease on their skin to keep their body warm. The end destination for all of the logs was the booming company grounds where Muskegon Lake and the Muskegon River met. Here the logs were diverted into a separate area from the main river flow and channeled down a long corridor made of logs. Along the corridor were openings that led to large pens. Each of these pens belonged to a different company. Men were positioned near the openings with a long pike pole, and their job was to snag and put in the pen any log that bore the mark that matched their pen's owner. Once enough logs were in a pen, they were all chained together, and a tugboat would come to pick them up and deliver them to the respective sawmill. Once at the mill, the logs were unchained and left in a holding pen. When it was time to cut them, the men at the mill would use pikes to grab a log and feed it up into a chain conveyor belt that brought them up into the sawmill. In the sawmill, it was put on a cart that would bring it forward and run the log through the saw blade. The saw first cut the round log into a square piece of wood called a cant. Boards were then sawed off the cant and brought outside of the mill to dry on the docks. This wood might be left out to dry for 40 to 60 days. It could be shipped and sold once it was cut, 
but the wet wood weighed much more and cut back on the profits that could be made in a trip. Once the wood was ready, lumber schooners would pull up to the docks and men would load the ship by hand, carrying the boards on their shoulders. These schooners could hold 200 to 250 tons of cargo, or about 225,000 board feet of lumber, so loading them was no simple task, and it was packed much like a family packing a minivan for camping. Boards were moved and angled until every available inch that could store lumber had lumber. Even the decks of the boats were fair game, and many schooners left port with six-foot-tall piles of boards on their decks. These schooners would then take, weather permitting, two to three days to make it to the docks and lumber yards of Chicago, where they were offloaded. The lumber was then sold and shipped throughout the United States using the rail networks of Chicago. This process helped Michigan and the Great Lakes region become the leading lumber producer in the 1880s, culminating here in Muskegon in 1887, when over 665 million 449,921 board feet were cut. Or to put it in another perspective, 126,032 miles worth of boards if they were laid end to end. This length could go around the earth about five times. This high of the lumber boom quickly became a bust though, as the once believed inexhaustible supply of timber became exhausted. Advances in technology such as big wheels and trains led to year-round lumbering which amped up the production. Forest fires also played a massive part in the destruction of the timber supply. For every three board foot cut, five board feet were estimated to be burned in forest fires, some of which could engulf entire counties. By the turn of the century, the writing was on the wall for lumbering in lower Michigan. By 1905, the last sawmill on Muskegon Lake shut down and the lumbering industry moved on to new locations. I'd like to thank you for listening today. Visit the museum's website, lakeshoremuseum.org, to keep up with everything going on at the museum. If you'd like to see tools, images, dioramas, and replicas of many of the lumbering aspects mentioned on the podcast today, please visit the museum's Coming to the Lakes Gallery. 